Pope ignores arrest of Chinese prelate, and Roe v. Wade is an unprincipled decision. What do we know of Francis's agreement with Communist China from 2018? Will the aging modernists destroy the traditional Latin mass? The Dobbs case from Mississippi is now before the Supreme Court. What does it reveal about the social political climate in the United States? Why McCall and Christopher Ferrara discuss this in the 16th episode of their series, Church and State. Welcome to another edition of Church and State with Chris Ferrara and Brian McCall. Uh, how you doing this week, Chris? I'm doing fine. The world not so well, however. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get a decision on the Dobbs case from the Supreme Court. There was a little speculation, but uh, it'll come out eventually. Yeah, well, I, I think they'll probably just release it in ordinary course toward the end of the term, which is what everyone was expecting in the first place. Probably. Man, my view on that is that there's no way that if anyone on the five-judge majority was even thinking about changing his vote, that's not going to happen now. Because the perception would be that the mob intimidated a Supreme Court justice to revise his opinion. Yes, exactly. In which case, the Supreme Court would have totally lost whatever legitimacy it has left. Absolutely. Well, our first story, we're going to turn to China, and it was announced on May 11th that Cardinal Joseph Zen, the longtime prelate uh, in charge of Hong Kong and uh, Cardinal of the Roman Church, was arrested by the Chinese government under their national security uh, law, which I use the term loosely, uh, their thuggery. He has apparently been released on bail, but is still under investigation facing potential ramifications. At the same time, two priests of the underground church uh, that refused to join the communist-controlled patriotic church were also arrested and have supposedly been sent to, quote, re-education facilities. So really the interesting story here, aside from you know, our need to pray for the cardinal who's being persecuted, a cardinal I think is a great confessor of the faith, is uh, how is this happening? Didn't the Vatican sign a uh, a detente agreement with China that uh, was supposed to make everything honky-dory with the communists? Well, it looks like the wizards of Vatican diplomacy have done it again. And Father Gruner was tireless in his denunciation of this entire policy, of which this agreement is just a reflection, policy of Ostpolitik or East politic, which is the conciliatory approach to communist regimes in the hope of getting them to leaven their approach to the Catholic Church, it always backfires, of course. You're doing a deal with the devil. The devil isn't going to keep his bargain. It's a devil's bargain, and the devil wins. And that's what's happening now. Entirely predictable. Also entirely predictable is the conspicuous silence of Francis, the great paladin of human rights. Now that one, one of his cardinals has been arrested, you hear the crickets coming from the Vatican? Not a word of protest as far as I know, unless they came out with a statement today. Nothing really. No. I mean, again, this a prince of the church has been arrested. This should be full on diplomatic intervention. I mean, it'd be, you know, the equivalent of a prime minister in a sense, or a minister, a cabinet minister of a country being arrested. Uh, it's just nothing, you know, no, no real outrage at all. Although not surprising because uh, when Cardinal Zen, who obviously knows more about China than Pope Francis, having lived and reigned there, uh, tried to speak to Pope Francis about this agreement, he wouldn't even grant him so much as an audience. No, of course not. And uh, now the predictable result is the slow demolition 
of the underground church in China and a steady replacement by the so-called official church of priests and prelates who are puppets of the regime and who have to pledge allegiance to a regime that has presided over the forced abortion of children. In other words, genocide, slave labor camps, and every imaginable human rights violation. And this is, again, one of the fruits of so-called diplomacy conducted by the Vatican. They're totally incompetent when it comes to dealing with communist regimes, and they're hobbled in the first place by this policy of ospolitik, trying to conciliate a regime that cannot be conciliated. They will relentlessly pursue the destruction of the underground church and its replacement by this monstrosity they've created, the Catholic Patriotic Association, which is this hideous thing that calls itself a church, and it's actually just an arm of the Chinese communist state. Now, this agreement that we've mentioned, uh, what, what exactly does it say again? I'm trying, I'm trying to remember. Oh, wait, that's right. We don't know what it says. <laughs> <laughs> I was scratching my head as you said that's that. Right. It's the secret accord that no one is allowed to see. But we can deduce its provisions from the operations of the Chinese government since then. So we really, I guess you're raising an actually valid point. Do we really know whether this agreement was even violated or is this not, in fact, the execution of the agreement that would, that would entitle the uh, Chinese government, having achieved recognition of the Catholic Patriotic Association, a schismatic pseudo church, to arrest anyone who opposes the schismatic pseudo church, mm. including Cardinal Zen. Maybe that's what's happening. Maybe they are, in fact, fulfilling the agreement. I, again, I hadn't looked at it. Yeah, right. But you're right. I mean, it's interesting. Think about it. if you signed this agreement that Cardinal Perelin, again, at first praised, he's recently in some comments said, oh, maybe he needs some tinkering. But if it's huh. such a great deal, why wouldn't you make it known? Right. It begs the question, leads one to believe maybe it does have a provision like this that, that grants such power. Now, the last time an agreement like this or, or a de facto situation like this exists in the church on such a wide scale, uh, goes back over a thousand years to the emperor of Germany, who was allowed, who was being tolerated, not, not necessarily just even to a point, but to invest bishops, uh, in the German church without the approval of the pope and, and just on his own authority. And, uh, the, the pope fought a bitter battle, uh, with the emperor, uh, Henry V of Germany to reassert the authority, the libertas ecclesia, the freedom of the church. Uh, but since Vatican II, we're really big into religious freedom, I thought. But, but here, I mean, it's sort of the reversal of that great investiture controversy, the reversal of the freedom of the church and the subservience of the church to the communist party, allowing the communist party to name bishops of the, of, well, ostensibly part of the Catholic church. Well, I think what happens is the uh, Pope uh, gives them a list of names. They have veto power over the Pope's choices. <laughs> and if they continually exercise their veto power, they eventually get the bishop they want. And, of course, the priests of the schismatic pseudo-church, Catholic Patriotic Association, have been legitimated, apparently, under the terms of this secret agreement. So they are no longer considered to be, if they ever were formally, schismatics. So we don't even have a schismatic church when it's created by the Chinese communist state and it purports to exercise authority against the authority of the Pope over the selection of bishops and the maintenance of order in this so-called church. There's no, there's no schism there. And so, you know, I've said this before, apparently the concept of schism has disappeared entirely 
from the language of post-conciliar churchmen, except when it comes to the four bishops of the Society of St. Pius X. Those are the less schismatics on the face of the earth. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the only way to, to get the, the Chinese Patriot Association into trouble is if they reached out and started talking to the Society of St. Pius X. Then all of a sudden they might be persona non Oh, I actually made a joke about that. <laughs> if the Society of St. Pius X wants to regularize its situation, it needs to join the Catholic Patriotic <laughs> Association immediately. <laughs> that would solve the problem. Right. Well, yeah, we remember also that uh, because of the quirks of history, the Chinese Catholics were using the traditional Latin mass because they had not adopted the Novus Ordo liturgy. Yes. That's, of course, changed since then. I'll bet you that one of the aims of the agreement was to get the Novus Ordo into the Chinese Catholic Church. Probably, yes. <laughs> Probably you're right. Well, we'll have to watch the story because, interestingly, the only bits of detail the Vatican has shared uh, and again, they haven't even shared your procedure. We're assuming that the Pope does a list and they veto. It could be the other way around, that they present a list that he can veto. We don't know. But what we do know is it's a two-year agreement that was entered into in 2018, which was renewed for another two years in 2020. And so September of 2022, just a few months off, this will be up for renewal again. So we'll see, will the, the Vatican say, hey, since you broke the agreement with Cardinal Zen, we're not renewing it. Or, as you speculated, will they not have a ground for that because it's it may be as part of the agreement. So we'll have to watch the situation and see what develops with it. But really to move oh, on. I, I, should, I, should, I should correct myself. I think you're right, actually. I think it's yep. the reverse of what I said. I think the, the Pope proposes the list of bishops, or rather the Chinese government proposes the list of bishops, yeah. and the Pope has veto power. But how many Again, times? I have seen it. I have seen it both ways. I think we don't know. Oh, that that we really don't know. I guess you're what right. What it says, yes. I think we don't. But, but we'll see. You know what what happens. But uh, certainly, please keep Cardinal Zan in your prayers. He has certainly been a an outspoken critic of communism. Uh, as I said, I think a great uh, confessor of the faith has suffered for the faith, has defended the traditional mass, traditional doctrines. Uh, but as you said, maybe uh, th- this is a ploy to push the Novus Ordo in the, the Chinese church. But on that note, the one thing, although the Pope doesn't have time to meet Cardinal Zen, uh, he has a lot of time to lash out at traditionalists. And in his recent talk to the St. Anselms in Rome on liturgy, had more disparaging remarks about a formalistic liturgy that's lifeless and has, you know, nothing. And people are just going through rote motions. Oh, you mean the Novus Ordo? Yeah, no, yeah, you, one would think. Uh, but no, he was tra- talking about the traditional mass. Well, it's interesting. I don't think this pope has ever actually been to a Latin mass community anywhere in the world because his continual mischaracterizations of them don't bear with any traditional mass community across the spectrum of those groups that I've seen on three continents. And in fact, it, to sort of prove that, there was a letter that was published, uh, this week by a group of altar boys uh, who served the traditional Latin Mass at St. Mary's in Washington, D.C., the church which I believe the late Antonin Scalia was known to, to frequent for the traditional Mass, uh, right. Supreme Court Justice, as well as uh, some other uh, other famous people. But here's what these altar boys wrote to the, their bishop, the wilted, excuse me, Wilton Gregory, who is still going to implement Pope Francis's diktat on the traditional mass. He's, he said he's in the process of coming up with rules and regulations. They wrote begging him uh, not to interfere or uh, take away their their mass. I just want to read a few quotes from the their letter. They say if their 
uh, Linnaeus were no longer allowed. It would be like losing something precious, something of ourselves, nearly comparable to losing a loved one. They go on in their letter to say they partake in the mystery of the Eucharist through this Latin Mass. Hopefully, one or more of us will be called to serve our Lord as a priest. The letter is signed simply, St. Mary's Altar Boys. One other thing they say, again, we don't know. We presumably they're young boys of various ages. Uh, they say, we've been going to the Latin Mass of St. Mary's since we were born and have loved it since we were old enough to understand the beauty of it. So this sounds like a lot of people who go, can't understand it, don't have any idea what's going on, have no attachment to it. It's just rigorous formalism. Is that, that the impression you got from the, the words of these boys? No, it's, it's a living and vital movement among the young. The Latin Mass Restoration Movement is a young people's movement, the short for pilgrimage, in which tens of thousands over the years have marched from Paris to Chartres, Notre Dame in Paris to Notre Dame in Chartres, to celebrate the Latin Mass is overwhelmingly a young people's march. I think the average age of that group is about 18 or 19. And this is what alarms the doddering uh <laughs> aristocracy of the post-conciliar revolution, that it's a young people's movement, that their dream is going up in smoke. It never was anything but a nightmare. And they see these young people flocking to the Latin mass because it's the real thing. And they're terrified by that. Francis cannot understand how young people are attracted to this liturgy. So in his usual fashion, he uh, smeared them all. He said, well, if you just dig that uh, was his phrase. Dig, dig, he says, and you'll you'll find something wrong with these people. There mm. must be a mental disorder. Well, this is the old communist tactic. Anyone who objects to the official government narrative must be insane and must be uh, confined to a loony bin. In this case, <laughs> in this case, they have to be confined to the Novus Ordo, where the lunatics are in fact running the asylum. Which is the situation in the state too. Of course, the lunatics are now fully in charge of the asylum, and mm. the same people are depicted as crazy. No, it's, it's, I think you're right. And to me, a confirmation of this is his blatant attack through Tijonis Custodes and then his henchman's dubious dubia on the subject that is adamant of keeping the traditional mass out of sight, hidden. You can't advertise it, get it out of parish churches, put it in a broom cupboard somewhere, you know, uh, off in the far flung part. Because what he, what it really is an admission is this is true, that this is not just a bunch of old, crotchety octogenarians who just are unable to think about the future that when it's seen by young people like these young altar boys in Washington, they have an instant attraction to it. And frankly, by the the measures taken is really an admission of that, that if we don't hide this, people are going to like it uh, as opposed to it just being something nobody really likes anyway. Uh, And again, some of these altar boys admit in the letter their parents drive over an hour there and you know to to get to this mass because it's the the closest one they can get to again it doesn't sound like people who are lackluster in the faith but i think that's the problem i think that's what these rules show they know this is attractive to people well the parents themselves are young so let's assume you have an older boy who's 10 or 15 years old so the parents are in their mid 30s maybe let most late 40s so you have two generations already that are returning to liturgical tradition because it's a living thing and the crotchety old people that you're talking about who are accused of being the promoters of the traditional Latin Mass, actually those are the people you find at the Novus Ordo in the barely occupied churches 
And they're also running the empty seminaries, and they're also presiding over the shutting down of Catholic schools all over the country. So it's the old people who are presiding over this disaster and the young people who are doing something about reversing it. And again, we have, now we have two generations. Soon it will be three generations. There's nothing this pope can do to prevent the Latin Mass restoration because the Latin Mass is a work of the Holy Ghost formed over the ages. And ironically enough, from the bottom up in the devotion of the faithful, never imposed from the top down. And all Paul Pius V did in standardizing the Roman liturgy was to recognize its predominance in the church. And even then, he said, local rights of 200 years or more vintage could remain. But these two were derived from the Roman Missal. And that Missal was, as I say, a, a work of the spirit through the faithful. And the canon can be traced all the way back to apostolic times. So there's nothing that can be done to eliminate it. It can't be extirpated from the church, not even by brute force. This initiative of Francis will fail. Mm. Now, it's interesting when you, my last thought is you mentioned his comment about there must be something wrong with the people. And again, this is purely speculation, but from, I mean, his behavior, it almost seems like something bad happened to him as a little kid. I mean, it almost seems like his, his irrational hatred and detestation of it. You remember the example early in his papacy when he was a little boy, altar boy with his hands folded and he flipped out and almost, you know, shouted at the kid, don't fold your hands. I mean, it's almost like some, you know, abusive priest or someone appeared in his early life and has, has sort of skewed his whole psychology towards liturgy. Again, I have no proof of that, but just his behavior almost suggests that. Well, it could be that or it could be what is shown from the objective signification of all the different things he says, namely the utter arrogance of the modernist as reformer. And the modernist as reformer who is outlined for us a kind of character study in Pascendi, the landmark encyclical mm. of Pope St. Pius X, simply wants to reform everything in the church, everything, the liturgy, philosophy, seminary formation, the convents, you name it, it has to be reformed and made modern. That's what modernism is. And when you say that the church must be modern, what have you done? Well, you've launched the church onto the tides of history and the church succumbs to this whirlpool of utter historicism where it's changing with each passing day, depending upon the fashion of the day. And this is what's at work and Francis doing what you mentioned earlier. And that's when I knew we, we could no longer defend this pope. He was down in the grotto in St. Peter's. It was an altar boy standing like this. He walks up to mm -hmm. the altar boy, puts his hands on the little boy, and pulls them apart and says, what's wrong with your hands? Are they stuck? <laughs> now, what kind, what kind of a man would do that to a little mm -hmm. boy showing respect for the papal office? Mm -hmm. I think that kind of answers itself. It does. It does. Well, uh, we have a few minutes left. I think we turn to where we open. We were mentioning the Dobbs case and, and the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade if, if the draft opinion that was leaked does garner the five votes it seemed to have. And the sort of apoplexy of the, the radical liberal pro-abortionists uh, panicking that abortion may be restricted or, or may be outlawed in certain states. Um, there was an interesting phenomena in the GOP primary in Pennsylvania for uh, Senate for the Senate seat there. And uh, as we're recording this, there's not a clear winner. There were three candidates in that race, but two of them put over $12 million into the race. They were uh, Dr. Oz and McCormick, who is a banker, an investment banker and a George Bush appointee. 
But there was a third candidate who, again, I, it looks like probably won't win. The results aren't in as we record, but who really propelled into a race on a shoestring budget, I think less than a million dollars, pretty unknown. Uh, but one of the things that seemed to propel her into the limelight was very interesting and garner lots and lots of support. She told a very personal pro-life story, which is very relevant as states begin perhaps to adopt laws restricting abortion. She revealed that uh, she, her mother, was raped, that she was conceived in rape. Her mother, and a gruesome, horrific crime, her mother was only 11 years old, so not only rape, but uh, a rape of a child. Uh, but she tells the story to say, look, notwithstanding that, I am a person, and I, my mother let me let me live, her family let me live, and now I stand here today, a successful woman, again, running for U.S. Senate, may not win this time around, but a successful woman. And that really resonated with people, that, that powerful story, which really responds to these people, oh, well, we needed an exception for rape, because if you're, you know, if you didn't commit a crime, but somebody did, and you were, you were born, uh, you should be punished. So I found this very encouraging, just to see how successful she was in Pennsylvania with this story becoming public. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, this this such a response to a pro-life candidate. There might be questions about the sincerity of certain of her views. I've seen some pretty persuasive evidence that she might have adopted certain conservative positions. But who knows? But the point she's making is certainly unanswerable, which is namely that the fact that someone was conceived in rape doesn't deny that person his or her humanity. So how do you justify slaughtering that person in the womb? These The whole idea of exceptions to child murder, which is what abortion is, in certain cases uh, is a fatal concession to the principle that there is a right to eliminate a child in utero, and not only in utero, up to the moment of birth. And now some have even advocated, well, you know, a few days afterwards, why not? I mean, child was conceived in rape, and somehow there was a precipitous labor, and she delivered this child, not expecting that it would come so soon. But now the child was born, and she, well, was, she was a product of rape. So why not infanticide within a certain number of hours of birth? It's actually being seriously proposed by certain so-called ethicists, which is a logical consequence. You can kill in the womb. Why not kill immediately after the child leaves the womb? Why not up to the age of three, for that matter? Because the child certainly isn't viable at age one or two. Mm. So there's no logical stopping point once you justify even one murder of an innocent. And that's what the child in the womb in every single case is, an innocent. And if you can kill one innocent, where do you stop? You don't stop. And that's why Dobbs had to arrive at the conclusion that Roe versus Wade must be reversed because it's an unprincipled decision. It stands for the proposition that there is a right in the Constitution to kill children in the womb, but that right can't be found in the text. It can't be found in the natural law. It doesn't exist. It's a judicial invention. And so it's an all or nothing proposition. Either we agree that there should be this right to kill in the womb, in which case the entire moral order has been overthrown. Or we say, no, there is no such right. Roe versus Wade has to go because it imagines that such a right exists. So I, I think that uh, it's interesting to note that this case, I'm told by co-counsel in one of the matters I'm handling, was scheduled 12 times, which means that it was distributed to conference, all the materials in the case, and relisted. Something like 19 times, if I'm not mistaken, 
realistically. And maybe explain what does that mean? I was going to say, explain to yeah. our viewers. Scheduling means they haven't gotten around to it yet. So they just distribute it again. Relisting yeah. means they've begun discussing it, but they want further discussions. So they relist it and they relist it and they relist it. And so, uh, if it's repeated relistings produce this opinion, which came out in February. That opinion has to be written in stone at this point after all those relistings. There's no way they're going to list it again and have someone change a vote. As I indicated mm-hmm. earlier, if one of the five in the majority changed his or her vote now, that would be the end of the Supreme Court because the perception mm-hmm. would be forevermore that if you uh, raise up a mob and scream and yell and protest in front of justices' houses, you can get them to change their votes as if they were elected representatives. Uh, which is why it is a federal crime to protest in front of the home of a judge, juror, or witness in any legal case. I mean, for the obvious reason that you cannot even have the appearance that a decision in the justice system is made because of uh, outside pressure. Uh, well, that's an actual that, federal crime. It is, and, yes. And, and the integrity of the judicial system depends upon justices being free from such influences yes. from basically terrorization in their own homes. So yes. that federal crime, though, is being ignored by the Biden Justice Department. They have no intention of prosecuting these people. But January 6th, that's a different story. Right. Even though we see a videotape clearly allowing these people entry into the facility. In one, in one video, you see the uh, security forces, the you know, Capitol Police, actually pushing people inside the building. <laughs> Crowd control, you know, and then and you see them walking around taking pictures and selfies even some of them took pictures with the guards. So they were strolling around in the Capitol building. That's that's an insurrection, you see. And these people all have to rot in jail. Uh, you know, it's too bad they can't execute them. That's the attitude of those who are prosecuting, or I should say, persecuting them now. But it's okay if you terrorize a Supreme Court justice and threaten him or her. No, and again, this clearly, the, the uh, Attorney General in name only, Merrick Garland, who's I think going to go down as one of the worst attorney generals we've ever had, uh, is doing, as you said, nothing. He is allowing federal law to be violated publicly on television and doing nothing. And again, if it weren't for, and I got a lot of criticisms of Mitch McConnell, but if it weren't for his fortitude at the end of the Obama administration, that man would be on the Supreme Court right now. Uh, yeah, not everything about Mitch McConnell is bad. No, he's again, he's he's a mixed bag, but you have to give him credit. Done some good, he's done some good things, but good. overall, he's an establishment player. Can't be yes, broken. but no, his his determination to prevent Merrick Garland on that court, and again, he would be sitting in Justice Gorsuch's seat right now. What if somebody, his true colors have been shown by just not only this, his investigation of parents at school board meetings uh, as domestic terrorists just prove he has. No respect for the Constitution or the law. So yeah, and when I when I look at the American scene now, including the likes of Garland as Attorney General, when I look at the rise of transgender fanaticism, the uh, mobs screaming for more abortions in the streets, people losing their jobs because they won't take a useless vaccine mandated by a reckless government. When I see all of this, I think, boy, we really actually underestimated the impact of Trump losing the last election. It's obvious that Trump had his thumb in the dike. They pulled his thumb out, and the water has yes. rushed through that small opening, and now yes. the flood tide is loosed everywhere. It, it's absolute insanity everywhere in this country because the Democrats are controlling the, the levers of power at the national level. So our mm-hmm. only hope 
humanly speaking, is in a reversal in November, which at least would make Biden a lame duck president. But boy, oh boy, we really did underestimate just how just what the stakes were in the last presidential election. Absolutely. Well, humanly speaking, but as we know, there's more than humanly speaking. And, and Our Lady of Fatima is our, our answer. She uh, has all of us in her hands and uh, it, she will ultimately be able to do much more than uh, Donald Trump or anyone uh, human uh, to bring about a, a real change of our world. And that being the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. So we can continue to do our part observing the first Saturdays, saying our daily rosary. Uh, that uh, her triumph will come. There we have it. Thank you, Chris, and uh, look forward to speaking to you in another couple of weeks when we give our view from the Fatima Center on Church and State. Take care. God bless. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, and to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. Our Lady of the Rosary, Ora Pronobis.